here and we are carrying on in our little study in the New Testament book of Ephesians, looking as Andrew introduced earlier at the church as God sees it. If we want to find out what the church is like from God's point of view, it's sooner or later we're going to have to zoom this in to an individual level and that's where we go today. We're going to see our hearts, our hearts as God sees them and we'll see God's heart as well. And then we'll see the purpose of our lives as God sees it. All of that is here in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. So let me encourage you to keep that open on page uh, 1133. And as you are uh, 1132, as you get ready for that, I want you to imagine a world where you only ever got exactly what you deserved. I know that on one hand it might seem like a pretty fair place to be. But if we press down, I think it would be quite a miserable place to live. No such thing as good luck. No such thing as presence or kindness. No generosity. You only ever got what you deserved and what you earned. I think it would be quite a miserable place to be. What if we extended that even further and God treated us like that? That God only ever gave us what we deserved. And every human who came before him on judgment day had their life precisely weighed and then they were rewarded or punished based on every thought, action or attitude. Now, when we're honest with ourselves, we know that if that was the case, we would have no hope at all. And so today as we look into the scriptures and we do see some confronting truths about our own hearts, we will, I hope, be renewed with thanksgiving and love that God does not treat us as we deserve. Uh, grab the outline out as well that gives us the logic of the passage. We're going to start with the deep, deep depths of the sinful condition across all humanity as we look there at our very great need. And then we soar to the heights of salvation in the middle of the passage. And then just the last verse, verse 10, is that last point, the workmanship of God. And we see our very great purpose for those who are renewed and made alive in Christ. So let's start with verses 1 to 3 in the depth of sin. Here is God's diagnosis of the human condition before God intervenes in somebody's life. And there's a couple of descriptions there in, in verses 1 to 3. It's pretty dark reading, but there's three descriptions of this human person. They're slaves, they're under wrath, and they're dead. And let's just try and unpick those different images as we go. So there are the verses up there, not so much so you can read all of it from the screen. I want you to be reading it from the scriptures there. But I'll just highlight the phrases we're looking at first as we think of this idea of being slaves. This is the first thing to draw out, that the person outside of Christ is enslaved to three different forces, says God. First, the ways of the world. That's the herd mentality where we take our cue of what's right based on what everybody else is doing. In the Bible, the world stands for the forces opposed to God. It's life without God. Worldly thinking is reasoning and morality that's formed absent from God. And we go, we go on with our thinking and our attitudes and our behaviour, going with the flow we can't escape it. Every one of us follows the ways of the world. Now that's an influence that's coming from outside of us. There's an invisible influence as well because who is standing behind the ways of the world? It's 
the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's the, that's the devil. That's Satan. He's the one who brings the source of worldly thinking. He's the one that stands behind it all. Now make no mistake, this is not a little guy in a red suit with a pitchfork. Much, much more sinister than that. The devil is the invisible whisperer softly coaxing humanity away from God. Fueling the lie of independence. Go on, little human. You'll be free if you live your way. Live your way. It's the only way to be really fulfilled. You'll be great. Go and do it. And as a herd, humanity moved further away from God under that great lie. Those, those are two forces outside of us. There's a third force inside of us. That's our sinful nature. The word nature implies that this is natural to us. And yes, since we're all descendants from Adam, we've all inherited this fallen nature. Verse 3 describes the force of the sinful nature, that we live gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. The human person can mask the sinful nature, we can polish it, we can sanitize it, but we can't control it. Now you know, I know, we have an impossible time merely controlling the food that we eat. We try and stick to a diet and we can't do it. You cannot even control what goes into your mouth um, over a day, a week, a month and over a year. We just can't do it. Let alone the deeper cravings of greed or lust or pride or envy. And so we live gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, being enslaved to them and just following them. Here are the verses that show that the human person out there on the streets, walking down the streets, up there at Warunga shops, getting their brunch on a Sunday morning, they think they're free. You and I, when we live this way, we think we're free, but we're not free. We were not free, slave to these forces. But it gets worse than that. Let's pick out the next theme. It's there at the end in verse 3. When we live this way, we are by nature or were by nature objects of wrath. Living in this way brings a personal consequence of God's judgment. Each one is guilty. You see, sin is not just this bad disease that infects humanity. Oh, poor humans, we're now a little bit corrupted along this way. Sin also feels a deli- feeds a deliberate defiance of God at a personal level. It arouses the wrath of God on us. And it gets even worse than that. We jumped over that phrase at the very start. Let's highlight this one now. That humans are not free, but slaves, as we've seen. Not blessed, but under wrath. And humans are not alive, but dead. Chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. This is not exaggeration to make a point. This is a spiritual fact. The human outside of Christ is not just a bit sick. The human outside of Christ is dead. Physically alive, of course, with an intellect and personality and bouncing around. But where it matters most, in the soul, in the spirit, they are dead. You can imagine asking the doctor, Doctor, how, how bad is it? Well, I'm sorry, you're dead. 
That's what these verses are saying. Yes, I'm, I'm living, I'm breathing, I'm walking around, but inwardly, dead. It means dead in terms of the ability to please God. Dead in terms of the ability to want to please God. Dead in terms of the ability to even start or desire or create that relationship with God. We simply cannot do it. We are dead in transgressions and sins. You may have heard once upon a time an illustration or description of the gospel message that goes something along these lines. Imagine you're out at sea and you're drowning, you're struggling, you're running out of energy and just before you bob under you see the lifeboat racing out, crashing crashing through the waves and out comes the the lifeguard, he throws his hand over the side and, and he says, all you have to do is grab hold. And the illustration of the gospel goes something like this. There you are in the water. Just reach up your hand and grab hold and you'll be saved and you can climb into the boat. Or perhaps you've heard um, a a similar illustration like this. Imagine you're sick. You're sick in hospital. You're so sick you can't even lift your hand. You need someone else to put the medicine into your mouth. All you have to do is open your mouth and then the medicine will come in and you'll be saved. But each of those pictures distort the human condition. And they play very lightly the phrase we've got up there on the screen, that you were dead. A more accurate gospel illustration would be along the lines of, there you are in the water and you know what? You drown. And your body goes to the bottom. And the fish pick away at your body and there's just a pile of bones left. That's all there is. And then comes the lifeguard and then picks the bones out and makes you alive. That is the depth of the gospel. Now, before we move on to that good news a little bit more, we need to just dwell a bit on the force of these verses, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. These verses dispel some of the illusions that our society is so addicted to. The illusion about our merit. We love to puff ourselves up. But if we take these verses seriously, then even the most polite, Warunga-dwelling, well-educated, articulately spoken, conservative-valued man or woman is a slave to the world, the flesh, and the devil, without merit and hope in God's courtroom. Another illusion our society is addicted to is the illusion of freedom. We glory in our independence. We pursue freedom at all costs, freedom to travel, education, family, where to live. You choose it all. You're free to choose it all. You're now free to choose your identity, your sexuality, your gender. Choose it all. You are free. And we overestimate our ability, even on the spiritual journey, discover your way, be the captain of your ship, find your way to God. You are in control. But the human is not free. Everyone without Christ is dead. Self-help will not save those who are dead. Humans are no more able to choose God than a corpse is able to climb out of a casket. And these verses pull no punches at all because we need to grasp the misery of our wretched state so that we can grasp the miracle of what God does next. Gladly, verses 1 to 3 are not all that we have. As we push on to verses 4 and 5, we get the miracle of what God does next. 
is a very wordy couple of sentences here. So it's these five words that capture it. But God made us alive. That's the essence of the gospel message. That God made us alive. When we had no more ability than Lazarus in the tomb for three days to come out on our own, no more ability than those bones on the bottom of the ocean to somehow muster itself to get up to the top again, but God made us alive. Now, why would God do that? Why would he look at us and make us alive? Well, a few phrases are going to come in, and this is what brings the wordiness of it. The first one is about his love. This is verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God made us alive. God is love. It's the theme that strings the whole Bible together. His very essence is love. His being is love. God's love is so great that he loves the unlovable. He loves his enemies. Unlike humans who usually only love those who love us back, God loves those who are hostile to him. His love is so great he's able to wrap his loving arms around the very beings who are spitting in his face and trying to run away. Because of his great love for us, he made us alive. There's another theme there as well. Uh, this one's into verse 5. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Mercy is the quality where you look at someone pathetic and miserable and yet you still show kindness to them. And the more pathetic and miserable they are, uh, when you're merciful, the, the, the bigger that mercy is. Mercy is when you find the stray, diseased cat on the side of the road and you think, actually, I'll take it in and make it my pet. Mercy is when a country opens their borders and allows refugees who have no home, no hope, no nothing to come on in. Mercy is when God looks at a sinful human and is moved to act kindly towards them. That's mercy. And so these two big parts of God's heart, beating away as he looks at humanity, great in love, rich in mercy, beating away, and they prompt God to respond to us in grace. It is by grace you have been saved. Now, what does it look like to be saved? Paul has forced us to look in the mirror in those first three verses and see the real reality of the human person outside of Christ, but he'll now go into as much detail in what it is to be saved. We had three descriptions of what it was to be in the sinful condition. Here are three descriptions of what it is to be saved. Step one, made alive. Made alive with Christ. God speaking words to animate a dead soul. The resurrection power that brought Christ from the tomb is the same power that makes a Christian alive. That's step one. Step two, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us in him, uh, with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Having pulled that corpse out of the water, God didn't just leave it alive on the beach. He took the Christian and he gave the Christian a seat in heaven. 
And here's the totally amazing part of this. This is not heaven in the future. It's heaven now. Do you see the tense, the tense there of the verb? And God raised us up with Christ and seated us, past tense, it's happened, seated us with him in the heavenly realms. So you are sitting, uh, sitting now with Christ. Sitting here in these pews. Yes, our bodies are here. But because the Christian is so united to Christ by faith, That as Christ is in heaven, so we are in heaven with him, seated around him. That's step two. Step three is there in verse seven. There is still more yet to come. In order that in the coming ages, that's eternity to come, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. These riches to come cannot be numbered, cannot be counted, but they're awaiting us. They're awaiting those who are in Christ. Here then, in these few short sentences, we get the breadth and the fullness of Christian salvation. Made alive, one. Raised a seat in heaven, two. More riches to come in eternity, three. And when you take that in, And then when you look with fresh eyes at the world around us, we realise that humanity now is divided into two distinct groups. There are those who still are living in verses 1 to 3. Humanity who are walking around, breathing and living, but dead spiritually. And then there are those humans who are alive and seated with a seat in heaven now. Perhaps as we look at these verses, there are some here, and I'm sure there are many here, who even in the Bible reading earlier and now listening again afresh to these verses, who are already inwardly and quietly just saying, thank you, Jesus. Because I know there are many here who have experienced exactly what these sentences are talking about. And it's why we gather for church We've received God's grace, we've been united to Christ, we're part of this gathering in heaven, and so we we meet here to express that we're all part of that. And we meet here to to anticipate the more yet to come in the ages to come. It's why we come together for church. And we read these verses, we're reminded of the fullness of salvation, and we just quietly say in our hearts, thank you, Jesus, that you looked on me with love and mercy and kindness. We remember how extensive this rescue is and that's how we respond when we remember that. But there are others here, there always is, there always are more people here who maybe have not received this gift that these verses, these sentences speak of. And I hope the question now that's just right there at the very front part of your mind, the question must be, how do you get this? How do you receive this gift if you've not yet received it? And so look very, very closely, please, at verse 8. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The way to receive this gift of this fullness of salvation is one, through faith, not through works. They're the two little um, phrases there that we need to spend some time thinking about. Works will say 
Ah, thank you, God, for making this great offer. I will now earn it by being as good as I possibly can until I deserve it. Faith will say, thank you, God, I am not able to do anything. I will trust you to do it all. Works will lead to boasting. It will say, hey, look how much I can do to make God love me. We'll boast in front of God. God, look at me, look at me. We'll boast in front of each other. Look what I did to make God love me. Faith leads to humility because we are ever dependent and resting on God's loving care. Faith is the only way to connect to Christ. And before you begin to think, aha, well that's the bit I can do. Ah, I can have very, very great faith, the greatest faith of all. I'll do that. Well, not even faith comes from us. All of it is a gift from God. The whole package comes from God. Faith is not a work. It's really the absence of a work. Faith is just dependence. It's not a thing we do. It's just dependence. It's throwing yourself onto God's mercy. It's allowing yourself to fall into his hands. It's putting your pride off and saying, I'll come by faith only. It's a very vulnerable thing. Perhaps the most vulnerable thing a human can do is to come trembling before God and say, I've got nothing, I'm entirely in your hands. And when we do that act, faith is much more than just knowing in your mind, much more than just knowledge, let's fill our heads up with more knowledge about the Bible, much more deeper than that. Faith involves trust. That's putting it into practice. There was, during the 1900s, a very famous acrobat around the world called Charles Blondin. And he made his, his, um, his fame as a child in the circus, but as he got older, he became really famous around the world as a tightrope walker. Across the streets of London, he'd throw up his tightrope 80 metres above the streets and he'd go back and forward above um, the, the traffic and so on, doing somersaults. And he became world famous and um, came out to um, Niagara Falls. And for a couple of weeks, he strung his rope across 300 metres long, about 50 metres above the tops of the falls. And each day he would do a sort of a different stunt in front of the crowd. On one occasion, he took a a little stove out to the middle, a gas-powered stove. He cooked an omelette and had breakfast and then came back. On another day, he pushed a wheelbarrow across while completely blindfolded and then walked back. On another, he took one of his assistants on a piggyback all the way across to one side and all the way back. On that particular moment, the assistant jumped off the piggyback safely back on the land and then Blondin scanned the crowd. They were all clapping and cheering. And Blondin picked out one man in the front and said, do you think I could do that for you? Of course, said the man. I've just seen you do it for your assistant. And so Blondin offered, hop on. Now, what would you do if you were sitting in the crowd that day? Would you hop on? I mean, there's no way I would hop on. (laughs) But there's the world of difference between knowing and trusting. A world of difference. Yes, I can see it, I can observe it happening over there. The call of the Christian gospel is Jesus saying, hop on. But even that, there's a world of difference between Blondin and the tightrope and the Lord Jesus Christ. You might hop on and then you think, well, what if it's the one time Blondin makes a mistake? Or what if if it comes down to me, we get halfway and I panic so much, I wobble and, and I cause us to come crashing down? Jesus' offer 
is of such security that he will not slip carrying you. And he will have you so securely that you can't panic and wobble and and make the whole thing fall down. The offer of Christ is not come, let's take a little trip over Niagara Falls and back. He is offering to carry you to heaven. And he says, hop on. Faith is not the work that we need to do. It's us depending upon him to carry us where we cannot go. You have been raised with Christ, seated in the heavenlies, awaiting incomparable riches. Well, there is just one last verse that we need to take in to round this out. We started verses 1 to 3 with a picture of slaves. There's humanity blindly uh, following these forces. Verse 10 rounds it all up. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We started with the amazing depths of sin, the amazing soaring heights of salvation. We've listened to the amazing grace of God. Here are the amazing works when a human is repurposed in Christ. Repurposed, not to follow these other forces blindly, but repurposed now to find the good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. There's a wonderful um, sort of paraphrase of that, of that idea, we are God's workmanship. A wonderful paraphrase is, we are God's work of art. When you see and understand what God is doing with this bag of bones on the bottom of the ocean, this dead human corpse, and when he brings it to life, The converted Christian is God's work of art. And so you could go into all of creation, you could see the Milky Way, you could see Mount Everest, you could take in the Great Barrier Reef, you could see it all and still not see God's ultimate work of art, which is the sinful human redeemed. This hostile human now in his family, that transformation puts creation completely in the shadows. We are God's workmanship. Why? Created to do good works in Christ. That's where the works come in. They come in now that we're saved and we're finding works prepared in advance for us to do. Not works that make us look good. That's the good deeds that you hear about everywhere. Do good deeds, do good deeds. They make us look good. It's works that make Christ look good, works in Christ. It's the works of obedience that we find in the life of Christ. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Be truthful. Don't gossip. Don't gossip. Self-controlled in lust. Keep your word. Be generous with your money. Love the unlovable. Go make disciples of all nations. Preach repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. They are the good works. And they're not accidents. They, even they, are prepared in advance for us to do. And so we go out into the world looking for those opportunities to glorify God now that we've been saved. Just to carry our movie theme on from last week, Andrew shared about one of the movies he doesn't like. Uh, One of my favourite movies is Saving Private Ryan. And there's that scene right at the very end where here's a soldier... And he was being offered a free pass to come home, but the trick was that this other group had to find where he was in Europe. And the group go all around, and one by one they die trying to get this one guy back home safely. 
And at the very end of the movie, once they've found him and they say, you can go back home, but all the people who came looking for him are now dead. The last one to die says to him, to, to, to Private Ryan, earn this. Earn this. You know, eight of us have died so you can go home, earn it. That is not chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10 is, you're not earning your salvation. It's, it's live a life worthy of what you've received. Be worthy of the calling and the gift that Christ has given us. We've traced only 10 verses, but a huge terrain, amazing depths, amazing heights, amazing grace, amazing works. Let's pray that this week, even this day, we might find these good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Our loving Heavenly Father, thank you that you've not left us alone, dead, enslaved, under wrath, but you loved us and in mercy you've made us alive. For those here still trying to piece it all together, give us great clarity of thought of our own condition and great clarity of call for the gospel message. And we pray that by your Spirit you'll give us the faith, each one of us the faith, to trust entirely in Christ. Amen.